Good morning. Boker Tov to all. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. After our little summer break, we are back together, back in action, and so excited to study the Parsha together again. Uh, enormously grateful that our dear friends Becky and Adi Katz have agreed again to sponsor the Parsha series for the coming year in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Le'ili Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manish. A very, very special thank you to the Katzes for their friendship, for the generosity and sponsorship. And a reminder that while they are sponsoring the series, there are opportunities to sponsor each individual class, and we've made it easier than ever. Go to brsonline.org slash donate, brsonline.org slash donate. If you hit sponsor a class, you'll be able to put in the date, the language, pay all in one convenient place, and we will be able to partner with you in sharing and spreading the message of Torah. I thank you in advance. This week we have the privilege of learning, studying, and elucidating Parsha's Va'eschanan, the Parsha that continues Moshe Rabbeinu's monologue, Moshe Rabbeinu's soliloquy, Moshe Rabbeinu's march on the last day of his life to try to communicate and transmit into the Jewish people his sort of final will and testament, his spiritual final will and testament. He's trying to communicate what he has learned through the lessons of history and to give them a charge for what they are meant to be, what they're meant to accomplish, the nation they're meant to build in the future. Sefer Dvarim is a Musr Sefer. The Gedola Yisrael that in the summer wouldn't bring others Dvarim with them. All you need is a Sefer Dvarim. Eila Dvarim Asher Diber. Lekol Yisrael. It's not just to those in that place and at that time, but the messages of Sefer Dvarim apply equally in a timeless way to all of us. And excited to tap into many of them and share them with you this morning. So the Pasha begins, actually before we get even to the Pasha and Ve'eschanan, I want to begin with a message about Shabbos Nachamu. Because this Shabbos is Shabbos Nachamu, the Shabbos following Tishabov. We are transitioning out from focusing and leaning into the sorrow, the pain, the sadness, the tragedy, into feeling comfort, consolation, a sense of Nechama. Shabbos Nachamu. In fact, the Hasidic Shalabbas say, the Gemara tells us that if the Jewish people only observed two successive Shabbases, immediately we would be redeemed. Unlike the famous song, Just One Shabbos and We Go Free, it's two Shabbases and we will go free, we would be redeemed. And the Rebbe's point out, which two Shabbases are we talking about? Not any random two Shabbases, not simply two successive Shabbases, but specifically Shabbos Chazon and Shabbos Nachamu last week, preparing, anticipating for Tisha B'av and Shabbos Nachamu following Tisha B'av. And the question that we ask each and every year, the question that if you're a thinking, thoughtful person should bother you each and every year is, where's the Nachama and Shabbos Nachamu? Where's the comfort? Where's the consolation? What's different? Absolutely nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Not only has nothing changed the Jewish condition, has not improved, has not reversed. Anti-Semitism continues to spike and to grow. Jews continue to be targeted and beaten up, not only in Israel, around the world. Ben and Jerry's, who, during the nine days, did not want to lose the revenue by boycotting Israel when we had to eat milchiks, waited until after Tisha B'av in order to announce their boycott. The terrible, terrible, um, inconsistent, hypocritical, duplicitous treatment of the Jewish people continues. So where's the Nechama? The people that we lost and the tragedies that we endured, they've not reversed, they've not undone. Those people haven't come back. Where is the Nechama? What is the comfort in Shabbos Nachamu? We ask it each and every year. We try to quote different beautiful interpretations of what it could mean. We've quoted Rapinkas and Revolba and many others. But I want to share with you this morning an insight of the great Rav Avram Shor Shlita, son of the Orgid Dalyahu, 
the author of the Svarim Lekach Vehalibuv. And he says the following It says when it comes to Noach in Bracious Perakei Pasuk Test, we happen to have a Chumash right in front of us. So Bracious Chapter 5, Pasuk 9. The Torah tells us, Vaychi Enosh. I lost the uh, Perkei Pasuk Tes Noach. Where's the Pasuk about Noach? It says, Zayanach Amenu. Zayanach Amenu. And the Rishonim on this word, Nachamenu, have a debate. Rabbi Nebachi says, Mefarish Milosh Nechoma. Imkein Lamala Nikro Menachem. If it's Nechama, consolation and comfort for the destruction of the world, for the hard reset on the world, then why isn't it Menachem? Why is it Nechama? Because we want to continue to incorporate the notion of Chain, of Noach, Matzachain, Be'ne Hashem, who is Moshe's charm, his charisma, his Chain, why God tapped him to be the continuity to save the world. So says, Ravavim Shor, you know what the Nechama of Shabbos Nachamu is? Shabbos. That even after a weekday, the weekday is characterized and defined by scrambling, by working. We have to work, we have to struggle, the sweat of our brow, we survive. The weekday we're searching, we're looking, we're yearning for Hashem. We have to take a leap of faith sometimes when we live the weekday life, the Vachedika life, to believe that there is a reason and a purpose to the world. But Shabbos comes, and Shabbos we're whole, Shabbos we're complete. Shabbos is a taste of that world to come. Shabbos is a glimpse into the world the way it can and will be. Shabbos, there's clarity. Shabbos, there's comfort. Shabbos, there's a sense of confidence that Hashem is running the world. And Noach nikra, Hashem menucha, v'noach hu Shabbos. Noach, we say, Yonah Matzah, Noach, Noach is Shabbos. Noach is synonymous. His name, Menucha, is because he was Bebechinas. He had that character trait, that amuna, that ease, that tranquility of Shabbos. Shenoach umiloshim nechama. Shabbos kodesh uetzim hanechama. Lechein nekra Shabbos nachamu. So it's not that we call the day after Tishabav. We don't call it Motzei Tishabav nachamu. Isru Tishabav nachamu. Isru Tishabav nachamu. We call it Shabbos nachamu. Because the very source of the Nechama, the driver of our having a comfort, is immersing ourselves in Shabbos. In other words, just as at the end of every hard week, there's a Shabbos in which we remember and remind ourselves that there is a greater purpose, that there is a greater order to the universe, that nothing is random and everything's for a reason, that we're working towards something and that we will be rewarded with a taste of that world to come, so too that is a microcosm of what the whole world is, that even though we've endured calamities, tragedies, challenges, suffering, that even though we experienced a Tishabov and we don't get the people we lost back, but the Nechama is in Shabbos Nachamu. Shabbos is the source of Nechama. Shabbos is what is Menachem Us. And therefore Shabbos is Zechel Amasa Bereshis. Vayalakim Kitov Ma'od. Amar Kadosh Baruch Hu he elaborates more Kabbalistically, more mystically, not for now. But for this year, something to think about is not just that Tishabav is behind us. We're so grateful, relieved. It's in the rearview mirror. The nine days are over. We can swim, listen to music, have 
blow away, break out barbecues and move on. No, the Nechama is, we always have a Shabbos to come back to. Shabbos grounds us. Shabbos is our anchor. Shabbos is our center. We always have a Shabbos to come back to, and that is the source of our Nechama. Shabbos, Nachamu. Shabbos is what is Menachem as Parsha. Page 958 in the Yorz Torah describes, says, I daven to God I poured out my heart to the Ribbon Shalom. I davened as hard as I could to him. Vo'eschanan, Gematria 515, no less than 515 times. Moshe, over and over and over again, relentlessly comes back over and over and over again. The Sharon Betfila Repinka says, this is one of the modes or models of Tfila. The idea that we don't just discharge a davening, we don't deposit a davening, we don't put a check mark next to I davened, but if we daven and we're not answered, we're back again. We're going to mutcher and we're going to we're going to come back to God over and over and over again relentlessly. Put your hope and faith in God. And if He doesn't answer, if you don't feel there's a response, then strengthen your heart and what? Come back and do it again. 515 times. No less than 515 times. Moshe Rabbeinu comes back again and again and again. And he teaches us, like our children, our children drive us crazy. And they don't take no for an answer. They keep coming back again and again. They wear us down and they convince us or they try to persuade us with their arguments why they are worthy and we should reconsider and change our minds. And that is a model and mode of tefillah called chinun. One of the 13 synonyms of tefillah, the Yalkut Shimoni, provides Sha'aram B'Tefillah is based on Va'eschanan 515 times. Moshe comes over and over and over again. He keeps coming back again and again and again. Why does it say Ba'isahi? Why couldn't Moshe just say Va'eschanan El Hashem? I daven to God. Gematri Va'eschanan 515, 515 times I daven to God. Lemur, here's what I said. God, you've begun to show your greatness, your strong hand, heaven and earth. According to your mighty acts, so let me go see the land. What was his tefillah? Moshe says, let me fulfill my mission, my mandate. Let me complete my life's work. Let me get into the land of Israel. Let me have the schus. Some of us feel that way right now. We haven't been there in almost two years. And there are people who haven't been there in a lot longer. Those who go more regularly, we need our fix. We need contact with those holy stones and holy people. We need to be able to connect. It's what charges us and energizes us. Hashem, let me in, let us in. Let this pandemic go away. Not a criticism of the Israeli government. They're doing what they think is necessary to keep everybody safe. But Hashem, reverse the pandemic, reverse the reality. Let us be able to go. And Hashem says, no. Hashem does not let Moshe Rabbeinu in. Says the Holy Tzanzer, the Divrei Chaim of Tzanz, once was asked by his Hasidim. The Holy Tzanzer, the Divrei Chaim, was asked, What do you do? Ma'osa Rabbeinu lefnei hatfila? Rebbe, Rebbe, what do you do before davening? Mikvah, Tehillim, do you learn? What do you do before davening? And what do you think the Rebbe answered? Undoubtedly, he did all of those things as well. But what did the Rebbe answer? What does he do before davening? Said the Rebbe, you know what I do before davening? I daven that my davening should go well. And where did the Rebbe get this from? Where did the Tzanzer get this from? The Divrei He said, because that's Moshe Rabbeinu. 
I daven to Hashem that what ba'isahi that in that moment that I'm davening lemor, let it go well, let it flow, let me have the words. You know, sometimes we think that we should daven for physical, material things. I daven for parnasa. I daven for good health. I daven for nachas for my children. I should daven for physical, material things. But we forget that to succeed in ruchnius, to break out in spirituality, we also need siyatza deshmaya. We need divine assistance and help. And so Moshe Rabbeinu says, you know, I can open my mouth to daven. Sometimes it flows and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I find the words and sometimes I'm speechless. Sometimes I'm able to focus and other times my mind wanders. What will determine whether I'll have an effective davening? What will determine whether I'll have a transformational davening? So he would take a moment before he davened to daven that he have a good davening. A moment before learning to daven to have a good learning, to learn well, to understand, to retain what one learns. So Va'eschanan El Hashem said it's answer. Before I daven, I daven that I should daven well. Va'eschanan El Hashem, Moshe daven to Hashem, Ba'isahi, that in that moment that he's davening, Lemor, that he have an effective davening. I've shared the story before, but I once was invited to, uh, to the White House. This is not a uh, flex, or a, what do they call it? T4, the young people? But I'm telling you a story for a purpose. I once had the privilege, I was invited to participate in a conversation at the White House, and uh, I happened to be at the Sefer Rebbe the night before. And I asked the Sefer Rebbe, I'm going to have an audience with the, the mightiest uh, human being alive, with other people. What should I say? What are the words? What should we ask for? What should we communicate? What is it that I should say? I wanted some advice, some guidance, some thoughts. So the Rebbe said it wasn't Parshas Vezchanan. But he answered tersely, succinctly. He simply said, And I understood it to mean, Daven to Hashem that that in that moment, when you need to find the right words, let you find the right words. Sometimes we have to go into a difficult conversation with a business partner, with a family member. Sometimes it's a difficult conversation in the community. And uh, we're not sure we'll find the right words such a difficult conversation. Will we know what to say? Will we say the right things? Will we make things better? Will we bring support and comfort? Before the conversation begins, daven. That in that moment, that we are given the right words. Davening isn't relegated to the sitter, the Tehillim, or Shul. Davening is before each and every activity we do. Daven to Hashem that in that moment, when we have to make a fateful decision, in that moment, we have to have a critical conversation, in that moment, that will matter, lay more, that he puts the right words in our mouth. That was the insight of the Tzanzer Rav and Yibad Chaim Tov Baruchim, the Square Rebbe. Says Rav Druk, we're not yet done with Eish Tamid. We have some new Svarim to introduce this year, but we're not yet done. We've not exhausted the brilliant insights of Rav Druk. We will continue to quote them and disperse them among the many others. Says Rav Druk, the Pasuk, uh, the, the Medrash rather, in Dvoram Rabbah says, How do we know that Moshe Davin 515 times? I already told you this. Because Veschanan in numerical value is 515. We know he daven 515 times. And wonders the great Rav Druk. Yesh litmoa. Moshe Rabbeinu eshkiat filos rabbas kolkach menash shizkalikanus alit Yisrael. Moshe daven 515 times. But Moshe was not the only one precluded from entering the land of Israel. Moshe, who dedicated his life, who sacrificed his life, 
Moshe had blood, sweat, and tears to get the Jewish people into that promised land, and all he wants is to go in. And why can't he go in? Because he made a mistake. Back in Parshat Chukas, when God said, speak to the rock, and instead of speaking to the rock, he hit the rock. And we spoke then, we won't review now, what did he do wrong? Countless suggestions have been offered. What was Moshe Rabbeinu's mistake? Was it a mistake or reality? We've shared many, many interpretations. However, my dear Parsha perspective friends, I call your attention. When God offered an instruction back in Parsha's Chukas, when he said, speak to the rock, to whom did he address that charge? It doesn't say, vidibar ta elasela. You, singular, speak to the rock. It says, vidibar tem elasela. You in the plural. Who was Moshe's partner? Who was Moshe supposed to speak to the rock with? None other than his normal mouthpiece throughout his career, his brother Aaron. So wonders Rav Druk. Because you failed to sanctify my name, both you, Moshe, and Aaron. Neither of you will enter the land. So why wonders Rav Druk? Here we have a parsha of Eschan in the very beginning of the parsha. Our parsha chock full of an incredible amount we'll never get to, including Aser Sadir and so much more. We'll do our best. But Eschan, the whole beginning of the parsha is Moshe's relentless plea, Moshe's muttering and petturing and not leaving Hashem alone. Let me in. What about Aaron? Do we find even one time Aaron saying, Hashem, can I go in? How come Aaron doesn't daven relentlessly the way Moshe? Moshe is praised. We learn from Moshe. We learn a whole mode and model of davening from Moshe. Why didn't Aaron daven? Why did Aaron take no for an answer when Moshe refused to take no for an answer until he had no choice? So several suggestions are offered. The Megala Amukas, the Helega Megala Amukas suggests that Aaron knew, Aaron understood Megala Amukos suggests, uh, believes in reincarnation. Reincarnation is a fascinating subject for another time. We've given a whole shir on it uh, previously. There are two different perspectives within our tradition. You're not obligated to believe in reincarnation, but you're also entitled to, if you want to, there's an entire stream that believe in reincarnation, that our soul comes back in another form, in another body. It's more work to do, and it will keep coming back until the soul has used some goof in order to make choices that the soul needs to make. And others say, no, you get one shot. You're in this world one time. So the Megala Mukas believes, subscribes to reincarnation Gilgal and says, we have a tradition that Aaron HaKohen, Moshe's brother, came back, was resurrected. He came back in the uh, Gilgal in the uh, form of Ezra HaSofer, the great prophet Ezra. Ezra who led the Jewish people too few of them, not his fault, but ours. But Ezra, who led a return to Israel, the Sefer Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah. So we have a tradition, the Megala Amuko says, that Aaron came back in reincarnation as Ezra. Ezra did enter Israel. Ezra led the charge to come back to Israel. So therefore, Aaron didn't need to daven. The Chidah says the same thing in the Sefer Midbar Kadmos, in the name of the Ramaz. And he adds, 
It's not a coincidence that Aaron comes back as Ezra because Ezra accompanies, leads, inspires, ushers the Jewish people into Israel. That's what Moshe and Aaron wanted and were meant to do. So Aaron comes back as the reincarnation of Ezra, completing and fulfilling his earlier mission, now bringing and ushering the Jewish people into Israel, and therefore he didn't daven. He knew that he would. He didn't have to say, please, Hashem, give me a chance, let me go into Israel. He says, thank you, Hashem, for the fact that I will go into Israel and lead others into Israel, when, not in that lifetime, but in the future, when he is reincarnated as Ezra Hasofer. That is the answer of the Chidah, and the Megala Amukos. Another interpretation, the Sefer Todos Yitzchak, the uncle of the Beis Yosef, or Yosef Karo's uncle, Todos Yitzchak, says the following, Aaron had nachas ruach. Aaron was satisfied. He had a continuity. He had a legacy. His children were memala makom. They were taking his place. His children would continue as the high priests. The leadership Aaron had, he's not resentful. It's cut short because his children will pick up exactly where he left off. Moshe doesn't have that blessing, that privilege, that opportunity. Moshe's children do not succeed him. Moshe's children are not his legacy. Moshe is succeeded by someone who's not a relative, his loyal student, Yehoshua, but not his direct relative. Since Moshe doesn't have that satisfaction, that at least his children will continue to be leaders who lead them into the land, that's what drove Moshe to Davin as opposed to Aaron. That is the answer of the uncle of the Beis Yosef of the Sefer Todos Yitzchak. A third interpretation comes from the Me'am Lo'ez. Me'am Lo'ez says something very interesting. The Gemara Chazal and Sota Daf Yudal tell us that the reason Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to enter the land of Israel, Does Moshe want a shwarma? Marzipan Ragalach? What was Moshe Rabbeinu? Why did he want to go in so badly? He heard about the breakfast at the Waldorf, the breakfast at the plaza, the hilt, and I don't want to leave anything out. He heard the citadel. He heard about the incredible breakfast, the Israeli-style breakfast, the omelets, the fresh fruits, the fresh vegetables. No. And lekachamar Moshe. Moshe says, I crave, I have an appetite, not for an Israeli breakfast or for shawarma or ragalach, I have an appetite for mitzvos. And there is a category of mitzvos that you're not eligible to fulfill outside the land. Mitzvos hatluyos ba'aretz. So says Moshe, my desire, my drive to get into Israel has nothing to do with me, it has to do with my soul, my neshama. I want to do mitzvah so badly. So suggest the me'am lo'ez. If that's the case, Aaron, Aaron as a Kohen, as a Kohen Gadol, if he made it into Israel, would be the beneficiary of some of those mitzvahs hatuluyos ba'aretz. He would receive the truma, and he would be given a portion of land in other people's area, territory. And Aaron would have the wool that they would shear. Aaron as a Kohen stood to benefit. So Aaron didn't daven, lest it look like he wasn't accepting the divine will, and instead he wanted to cash in. Lest it look like Aaron wanted to cash in, he forfeited that davening and he said, Hashem, whatever you want. Moshe didn't stand to benefit. Moshe wasn't going to receive anything by those mitzvahs and therefore he davened, let me in. 
not for the gashmias, not for the physical material blessings or bounty, but for the spiritual. Okay, that is the first piece of, of Rav Druk. Second piece, Vayaschanan. So the Medrash says again, we know he daven 515 times. From the gematria of the word Vayaschanan is 515 times. Here's the question. Here's the question. Moshe Rabbeinu, he davens 515 times. He saw that he's not succeeding. After one, after two, after ten, after a hundred, he keeps going. Gazar al he fasted. Va'aguga ketana va'amad besoch, he drew a little circle and stood in front of it. Inside it, I'm not leaving here, God, until you consider. Moshe, Moshe, what did he do? Lavash sak v'nis atev sak, he put on sackcloth and um, smeared uh, ash on himself. And he davened and he poured out his heart out in front of God and he said, Maker of heaven and earth, reverse your decree, reconsider, let me into the land. And here is the question. Why did God let Moshe daven so many times? You cannot learn the first Pasuk of Eschanan and not ask this question. If the answer was going to be no, and not only was it a no, it was the no who when sometimes we are parents with fortitude. Sometimes when we're parents who are ready and willing to parent with everything that we need and should be doing, we're willing to tell our children, no, that's what God does. Moshe testifies, the parsha tells us, that Hashem said to me, enough! I don't want to hear another word about it. God says to Moshe, don't bring it up again. I'm done. Finished. Genuk, that's it. We're done. Moshe says, what could I do? I hit 515. I thought I was going to get it. One more and maybe I would have. And Hashem stopped me in the nick of time and said, do not bring it up again. It's enough. It's more than enough. So wonders Rav Druk, have you wondered this question? Wonders Rav Druk, if God knew, that the answer is no. He knew the answer was no after number one. Sometimes my children ask me something and I say, you could ask me not 515 times, you could ask me 515 million times, the answer will be no. So let's save us both some trouble and drop it now. Don't ask number two or three or five or 10 because the answer is going to be no. And then you get into that. And if you ask again, then not only will it be no, but something else will be no too. So if Hashem knew he was gonna answer no after 515, why put Moshe through the exercise and process? Why give Moshe the false hope? Why let Moshe dress in sackcloth and ash and draw the circle and pour out his heart and beseech it and beg God? Why? Why put him through that? Why put him through that? This is not the question of Rav Druk, it's a question of the Ibn Ezra. Rav Avram Ibn Ezra, the great medieval commentary. And Rav Avram Ibn Ezra says the following, God did it because he wanted all of us in perpetuity to read this parsha and say, wow, Moshe so desperately wanted to get into Israel. Moshe didn't daven 515 times for a Tesla. Moshe didn't daven 515 times for his team to win the World Series. Moshe didn't daven 515 times to win the lottery. Moshe daven 515 times for to get into the land of Israel. That was his love that was his ambition. That was his drive. That was his desire. That's what he wanted. That was what he wanted. So to instill in us 
that the great Moshe Rabbeinu, with all of his worthiness, when it was time to cash in and ask for something, what did he pour his heart out for 515 times? It was for Eretz Yisrael. And we too should feel the same way, says the Ibn Ezra. And as I say, I think there's a very powerful lesson, not only in Shabbos Nachamu, the week after Tisha B'Av, when we should be still mourning the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. But whether it's those who live in Israel who should feel that as much as Hashem has begun in Eschalta de Geula, we're beginning to feel the redemption, the privilege, the gift, the miracle, the religious significance of the modern state of Israel. But until we have a Beis HaMikdash, it is incomplete and deficient. And those who are not yet living in Israel, to ask ourselves not if, but when. There are legitimate reasons not to live in Israel. There are no legitimate reasons not to struggle with when we will live in Israel. 515 times, to show Moshe's affection and to create that affection, that draw for each and every one of us. Moshe, that's what he wanted. That's what he asked for. And we too, it should be at the forefront of our mind, should want, should ask as well. We want the pandemic to end. And among the reasons we want it to end is we can't wait to get back to Eretz Yisrael. As soon as we're allowed in, we will be there. That's our first stop. We're not going on some other exotic vacation. We're not going to some other locale. We're going to Eretz Yisrael, a beeline, as soon as we can, number one. Number two, says Rav Druk, another interpretation, and this is what I want to share with you. He says, A Jew doesn't take no for an answer. We daven, and we daven, and we continue to daven, and even when it feels like the answer is no, we daven again. Because through an abundance of tefillah, through the repetition of tefillah, through not taking no for an answer in tefillah, the Yerushalmi says in Brachas, the Tefillah Shal Shachana, Rabbi Chia B'Shem Rabbi Yochan, Rabbi Shem Mechalavta B'Shem Rabbi Meir, Vahaya Kihir B'Sal Hispalaf Ne'ashem, Pasuk says in Shmuel Aleph that when Chana kept davening, Hirbasa over and over and over again, you see that whoever dwells on davening and repeats davening and davens over and over again is answered. And that's why God had to stop Moshe, because if Moshe would have kept going, the answer would have been no. Now, my own interpretation on this is, because we know people who've davened and davened and not stopped davening and asking and asking, and the answer is no. They lose a loved one. They lose their own battle. They lose the promise or the hope that they had for a shidduch, for a child, for a job. They daven over and over and over again. What it means that tefillah is answered is not the particular tefillah necessarily. Maybe it's not answered for them, it's answered for another. We don't know the cosmic impact of our prayers how they ascend on high and when God pulls it from a file cabinet to answer that prayer, if not for us, but for another. And God does answer for us in another way. And what is that other way? That is the third interpretation. We wondered if the answer was going to be no, why didn't God stop Moshe earlier? Why 515 times? Why put him through the exhausting exercise when the answer was going to be no? That was our question. So there was a faulty assumption in the question. The assumption of the question is that the reason we daven is so we get the thing we're davening for. That the whole purpose of davening, the matara, the reason we daven, is so that we're answered, is so we get what we're asking for. But who says that's why we daven? Maybe we daven because the act of davening, the exercise of davening, the process of davening, it changes us, it transforms us, it leaves us different than the way we went in, so that when we're done, even if we didn't get what we want, we still got something. What did we get? A brand new us. 
What did we receive? A new connection with Hashem. What did we get? A new grounded sense of emuna, of faith, of strength, of a capacity to confront this world. So if you assume the only reason that you ask is to get a yes, so if you didn't get a yes, the whole thing is one big fail. The whole thing is one big failure. And why didn't God stop Moshe earlier? But if you assume that the reason we ask is not to get a yes, but is to have a relationship. Child goes out with a parent and makes a whole argument trying to persuade the parent for the thing they want. In the end, they didn't get what they want, but you know what they got? Quality time with the parent. A conversation with the parent. They got to debate and deliberate a fascinating request that they had, the ins and the outs, the considerations, the pros, the cons, why the parent was inclined to say yes, but why ultimately they said no, we got something we learned from it. So if you understand that the purpose of davening is not only to get the yes or the answer, but rather to get the experience to be changed and transformed, now we know why God did not stop Moshe. Why God didn't stop Moshe. Rabbeinu Yonah uses this language. Rabbeinu Yonah in his Shari HaVodah, Osman Bey's writes, when one person davens, it's as if we're bringing a sacrifice before God. Our soul is intertwined. It's attached to the heavenly spheres. We transcend, we elevate. We're able to climb out of this lowly world for the time in which we apply ourselves and we daven. So for that experience, for that visa to go to another place, when we daven, we're getting a visa. We're qualified for a visa to go visit another place. And that visit is worth it, even if we don't get, even if we don't get the answer. So that is uh, three interpretations. Why didn't Hashem simply stop Moshe after one time? If it was a categorical no, an irreversible no, then why let Moshe daven 515 times? Number one, the Ibn Ezra. To impress upon us Moshe's love of Israel and that we too should love Israel. Number two, because the more we daven, all the riboy tefillah is answered. If not for us, for another. And it is still answered for us. That was interpretation number three, which was that don't assume that the whole reason to daven is to be answered. The reason to daven is the benefit, the experience being transformed from the davening. And that is worthwhile, whether we are answered or not. Perak Dalad Pasuk Beis. Let's keep going. And now, Jewish people, listen, understand, we'll get to that later with the Shema we're familiar with from our davening. Listen, understand the Chukim and the Mishpatim I'm teaching you today. So you live. One of the themes of Sefer Bamidbar is this word so that you live. You can be dead while you're alive. You can live even after you die. It all depends on our connection with immortality. How do we achieve immortality? Through the soul and the spiritual world. When we live a life of chukim umishpatim, a virtuous and a valuable life, when we have an impact in this world, we achieve immortality. And when we live for the here and now, and when we deny the soul inside ourselves and all we think we are is a body, we're dead even while we are alive. So if we leave a legacy and our soul has been nourished through our lifetime, we live even long after we die. But if we ignore our soul and we think we're a body, then we're dead even while we're alive. And that's why Shema, if we listen to the message, the value, the vision of the Chukim and Mishpatim, then Laman Tichyu, it gives us life. It gives us life. And because God is giving us a formula, a prescription, God is telling us exactly what to do, we cannot play with it. 
We cannot manipulate or distort it. Here we have the Torah prohibitions. We are familiar. It's the Mishnah Torah. Dvarim repeats what we know from earlier. We have a prohibition of Baal Tosef and Baal Tigra. You cannot add to the mitzvahs and you cannot subtract from them. You're not allowed to add. They're God gave us 613, not 612, and not 614. And therefore, we cannot add, we can't distort. It is a perfect formula. It's a perfect prescription. We work for him, he doesn't work for us. Don't add and don't take away. Now, what's interesting is, what comes right after this mitzvah? Eneichem haro'os, Pasuk Gimel, the very next Pasuk, with no break. Your eyes have seen what God did with that idolatry called Baal Peor. Whoever clung, whoever followed that idolatry called Peor was eradicated. God eliminated. But you who cling to God, in contrast, if you cling to God, sorry, if you cling to God, you hold on. Here we go again with Chaim. You are alive today. To truly be alive. You want to live? It's through Amuna, through faith. You're really alive. With faith, we have the strength to be able to, with resiliency, to be able to confront anything. It's when we are truly, truly alive. So why are these contrasted and juxtaposed? Don't add or subtract to the mitzvos, And don't worship an idol. Don't count yourself among those who worshipped Peor, who had a terrible uh, end. Why are these two things connected? I saw several interpretations who remind us. Because if you try to change the mitzvahs, God says, here's the formula, here's the prescription. I'm the divine, omnipotent, all-perfect being. I created you, I created the universe. And here is the navigation tool. Here's the blueprint for creation. Go, enjoy my world. Have pleasure from it. Conquer it. And you say, mm, it's pretty good. Manual's pretty good. But you know, I'm just going to add a little here, trim a little there. Then are you really worshiping God or are you worshiping yourself? If religion is about submission and surrender, if it's about the recognition that he created the world and that we work for him, he's not the opposite, then we follow the formula to a T. But the moment that we're willing to say, mm, it's a good start, God. It's a good start. I'll take it from here. It's a good start. I'm going to make some changes, some edits. I'm going to add a little, take away a little then we're no longer serving Hashem, we're serving ourselves. We're using Torah and mitzvot as a platform, really, to serve ourselves, not Him. That's the interpretation I saw that many give. But there's another question that you could ask, and that is, what's so wrong with adding mitzvot? Taking away, I got it. God says, here's the formula, and who are we to say, I'm leaving something out? But if you're not leaving something out, you're adding, why would that be a bad thing? I would think that'd be a beautiful thing. God, if you love 613 mitzvahs, you're going to love my 614th and 15th and my 700th and my 800th. You'd think that taking on more mitzvahs, introducing more mitzvahs is even more noble. A mitzvah, a tzivoy, a tzav, is the way that I connect with God, then I should take on more. Why is it something that's looked at as, as bad? As bad. So Rav Juk suggests the following. He says, you know, when you add, often you take away. Because once you add of yourself something that you're not truly obligated in, now you're going to have a much more casual relationship towards that mitzvah. Because you think, you know, I really expanded, I really added something, and I don't really need to do that. Maybe I don't really need to do the core thing either. And where do we see this and how do we know this? 
says Rav Druk. We go back to what story? For those listening at home, which is all of you still for now, we're going to resume in person after the holidays for several technical reasons and for my schedule traveling Baruch Hashem for Simchas. We will resume in person in a hybrid model, both in person and streaming professionally online as well. Looking forward to that. But for all of you who for now are listening at home, so what story in the Torah does that remind you of? Don't add something extra because then when you violate the thing that's extra, you'll come to violate the core as well. Is there a story, a narrative in the Torah that reminds you of? Since you can't talk to me, I'll give you the answer. The answer is the chait of Adam Harishon. God said, don't eat from the Eitzadas. And Chava added her own new chumrah. Chava was guilty of Baltosif. She added a new mitzvah. She claims God said, not only don't eat from it, but also don't touch it. So what happened? When the Nachash seduced her and she seduced him and they touched it and nothing happened, she said, you see, you touched it nothing happened, so eskizunt, you could eat something too, eat something as well. You see that Chava added this layer to say, we're not even allowed to touch it. Her goal was to put a barrier. Her goal was to introduce a Chumrah to make us more likely to observe. But when the differentiation between the Chumrah and the Kor Halacha, when the added component from what we're basically obligated in got blurred the line between them, then once the snake pushed her and she touched it and nothing happened, say, whoa, we touched it, we made contact, I thought we weren't supposed to do that, and that was no different than eating it, Look, we made contact and nothing happened. So too we can eat it and nothing will happen. So suggestion of Druk, the problem about to- our first suggestion was the problem about Tosav is it's God's prescription, not ours. Don't distort it, don't manipulate it, don't touch it because you're going to ruin it. But the interpretation of Rav Druk is that while Baltosif on the surface seems noble, Mosiv Goreya is an expression. Kola Mosiv Goreya. When you add, you take away. This is it. It's perfect. Don't complicate it. Don't mess it up. These are the 613 mitzvahs. If you're Mosif, if you add, you're going to end up being Goreya. You're going to end up taking away because you're going to be less likely to observe because you'll have a casual, negotiate, negotiable relationship with all of it. Pentishkach, Perak Dalet, Pasuk, Tes. Torah goes on. So don't add, don't take away, don't worship poor. Instead, cling to God. Vatem Hadvekim. Meshechachma says, Hatem Hadvekim. If you want to hear more about Dvekas, we've given a couple hundred shirim living with Emuna. You can find them all online, Living with Emuna. Uh, There's a podcast, and you can find them on YouTube or our website. Living with Emuna, we talked all about what is Dvekas. The Meshachachma says Dvekas comes from the root of the word Devek. Devek is glue. Glue yourself to God. God says, Attach yourself to me. I have your back. Just follow me. Just stick with me. Devek, stick, glue. Hatem Hadvekim. God says, stick with me, everything's going to be okay. The kid on the first day of school sees a friend. They've never been to the school before. The person on the first day of work has a friend who's a co-worker. They say, I know you're nervous. I know you're anxious. Stick with me. Everything will be okay. When we get nervous, when we get anxious, dveikus. Stick with God. Cleave to God. Everything will be okay. Chaim kuchem hayo. That's how we get alive. We'll become alive if only we learn to stick to God. Many, many interpretations. What is Dvekas and how do we live it practically? You can listen to our Living with Emuna. Torah then says, I've taught you this chukim mishpatim. Ushmartem asisem. You should observe them. Because this is 
the wisdom and discernment in the eyes of the people, Asher Yishmun will hear it. And they will say, The nations of the world are supposed to say, Look at those people. Look at the observant Jews, how careful they are with Corona, how much they value life. Look at those careful Jews, how honest they are in business, the integrity that they have, how courteous and kind they are. Because who is a great nation that has righteous decrees like this? Be careful, says Moshe Rabbeinu. Be exceedingly careful. Protect and guard. Don't forget the things your eyes saw. Don't forget. Don't let it leave your heart all the days of your life. What is this Pasuk talking about? Moshe is warning and he's cautioning the people and he says to them, he says, you've seen extraordinary things. You've seen and you've lived through remarkable things. Don't forget them. Let them be fresh in your mind and memory. Transmit them to the next generation. Don't forget. They need to be active in your heart. Your whole life. Teach them, transmit them, inform your children and your grandchildren and generations to come with them. What does this mean? What is Asherah Ueinecha? What is Asherah Ueinecha? So the Alexander Rebbe, Reb Chanach of Alexander, Chashav Latova, says the following. He says the following. He says, Raki Shamer Lacha, Perush, Hineyesh, I need my glasses for this fine print. Hineyesh Bechol Dor Vador Bechozman Uzman Kabbalah Satora. We think the simple interpretation of this Pasuk is Kabbalah Satora. Don't forget what your eyes saw. You were there. You were at Har Sinai. You heard the voice of God. You received the Torah directly from Him. Don't forget. Don't forget. And that should be transmitted, that excitement, that enthusiasm, that energy, to every generation. But says the Alexander Rebbe, we're not just talking about the original Har Sinai. Every generation has its own Kabbalah Satora. Ulechol echad ve'echad, Sometimes a person is at Simashas. They were blown away. It's their personal Kabbalah Satora. You visited Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons and you saw the nature, the Niflos Abore, Ein Elokeinu, and that was your Kabbalah Satora. You walked away from something that could have taken your life. You experienced a miracle, something seemingly so coincidental that clearly was the Yad Hashem, the guiding hand of God, and that was your Kabbalah's HaTorah. Every generation and every person in every generation has their own Kabbalah's HaTorah. We see it through our own eyes. Don't forget the things your eyes saw, says Alexander Rebbe. We're not just talking about the generation of the desert. Don't forget what you saw and transmit that excitement to the next generation. The Torah and Moshe are speaking to every one of us. Don't forget what your eyes saw. You lived through the Six-Day War? Don't forget what you saw. You lived through Corona, a pandemic? Don't forget the lessons and the takeaways. Don't forget the extraordinary things, experiences, events, people, and vodatim. That is what we have to take, and that is what we have to communicate to the next generation. Lo, pentishkach. Don't, God forbid, ever, 
ever forget. Rashi says, what is it that you're not supposed to forget? Don't forget when you stood at Har Sinai and you saw the sounds, the enormous sound and light show. Don't forget the experience, the magnitude, the electricity, the energy of Kabbalah Satora. And that needs to be transmitted as well. It's a very powerful insight. Because Rashi is adding that on. The Torah only says, and is building on what comes before it. What said before it was, Yom HaShem don't forget when you stood at Har Sinai. Rashi adds on, what are you not supposed to forget about what you saw at Har Sinai? Rashi adds on, don't forget the way you got the Torah. Why does Rashi add that on on his own? That wasn't included. Here, Raki Shamer Lecha, don't forget what you saw and what is it that you saw? Yom that you stood at Har Sinai. Why does Rashi add on, namely, why does Rashi add that on? Rav Juk suggests the reason Rashi adds that on is because, listen very carefully, my friends, what is critically important for us to communicate to our children is not just that we stood at Har Sinai. Here is a list of do's and don'ts. Here are positive commandments and negative commandments. Here is a law book. Here is a history book. Here is a dry narrative. We're not just transmitting to our children facts and information and data from Har Sinai. But with it, we need to give them the kolos and lapidim. We need to give them the energy, the electricity, the passion, the fire, the bren. That's our responsibility. So Rashi understood, not only must we not forget, not only must we transmit what we saw with our eyes, we have to transmit not some dry esoteric teaching. We have to transmit the energy. We have to transmit the passion. We have to transmit the excitement. We have to transmit the fire as well. And that's why Rashi adds that on as well. Next, Perak Dalat, Pasuk Mem Aleph. We're running out of time. It's almost time to triage the Divrei Torah I wanted to share. We get to the Arei Mikla. We just had this previously in Parshas Masai. We have it again. Az Yavdel Moshe Shalosh Arim Be'ivar Yardim Mizrach HaVashemesh. Moshe set aside three cities in the bank of the Yardim towards the sun. Lanush Shomarotzeach, somebody who murdered by accident is able to run there. Why does it say, Az Yavdil Moshe? Az Yavdil Moshe. Then Moshe, it's not then, Az Yavdil Moshe. Moshe wasn't setting aside the cities. Moshe was giving an instruction for, when you'll enter the land, and you'll be in a position, this is what you need to do. This is not my question, it's the question of the Kliyakar. Kliyakar writes, Bekisha Pasuk Zem, Inyan HaKodim, Yatum HaFoshan, Luka Lomatsubiyar, what is the connection of this section of establishing the Ari Miklat, the section that comes before, and moreover, says the Kliyakar, why does it begin with Az, then? Says the Kliyakar, bend your ear, lend your ear, and listen. You see, from here, the Kliyakar quotes the Gemara Makos that even if a person anticipates they will not complete a mitzvah, it is upon them to begin. And they are credited with the mitzvah. We see this with David HaMelech as well, getting the Beis HaMikdash started, even though Shlomo was the one who completed it. But Amar Moshe, mitzvah so Moshe was beginning that process now. Even though Moshe could have said, 
this is for you to do. When you get that, you'll take care of it. I can't finish it, so why should I start it? The answer is, even if we're not confident or sure that we can finish a mitzvah, we should start it nonetheless. A lot more to say about Arei Mikla, the role of the Kohen Gadol, and why is it hinge on the Kohen Gadol and the responsibility of the Kohen Gadol, but not for now. Pasuk Parakei, Pasukei. Anochi Omeid ben Hashem ben Moshe reminds them, you remember when we stood at Harsenei Bechorev, and lo asavoseinu karases abrisazos. God did not just enter this deal, this contract with your ancestors. But with all of us, those who are here today, Hashem has established this covenant, this contract with all of us. And then he says, Anochi, this is the introduction to the Aseris Adibros, the Decalogue that appears in our parasha. And he introduces it by reminding them, Anochi omeid ben Hashem Hashem. I stood between you and God in that moment in order to communicate what God was saying. What does Moshe mean, I stood between you and God? It means when God tried to speak, we were overwhelmed. We were unable to incorporate, to integrate the word of Hashem directly. So Moshe served as that intermediary, as that mouthpiece. Anochi, I stood between you and the people, says Moshe. But about Baal Shem Tov, I elaborated on this last year. You can listen to last year's class. The Heliga Baal Shem Tov says, homiletically, we could read and interpret it to mean, you know what stands between us and God? Anochi. Anochi omeid bin Hashem omeinechem. Anochi is our sense of I, our ego, our selfish attitude, our narcissistic outlook. What stands between us and God is our ego. Ego stands for edging God out. It's an acronym. Edging God out. Ego. Anochi. Ego gets in the way. Why do we get jealous? Because of our ego. Why do we get angry? Because of our ego. Why are we arrogant? Certainly because of our ego. And why do we struggle to find what we know to be true? That there's a God and He's involved in our lives because of our ego. What stands between us and God is Anochi Omeid Ben Hashem Uveinechem. And now we come to the Aseris Adibros, repeated for the second time. We talked about last year. There's two Anochis right here, two Psukim in a row. Anochi Omeid Ben Hashem Uveinechem and Anochi Hashem Lokecha. Which Anochi do we put first? Our Anochi? Me? My id, my ego, my sense of self? Or the Anochi of Anochi Hashem Lokecha? Which one? Which one? Uh, supersedes the other, that defines us. In the Aseris Adibros, we have significant changes. We don't have time to unpack them now, but between the first way the Aseris Adibros were delivered and the way that Moshe recalls and recounts them here in, in Parshas Ve'eschanan, we have several differences between them in Kabiris Avicha Ve'asimecha, in Shabbos, and in others, and that comparison and contrast is worthwhile doing. A lot of lessons can be extracted. I want to share with you one from Rav Salavechik. In the Rav Chumash, it says the following. We observe Shabbos in the Aserah Sadibros, the Mitzvah of Shabbos, tells us why we should remember that we were a slave in the land of Egypt and God took us out. While the Exodus from Egypt invoked in the fourth commandment, in the wording of the Aserah Sadibros in Shmos is different. There it talks about because So the reason for the observance of Shabbos is an altogether different reason. In the first Aserah Sadebros, why do we keep Shabbos? The theme of Shabbos is Zechel Amas We are commemorating creation. Here, the second time Shabbos is given, it's not commemorating creation, Zechel Amas it's commemorating what? Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Exodus. Reflecting both of these themes the Kiddush recited on Friday night, says both Zechel Amas and Zechel Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. There is a dual theme that underlies the recitation of Kiddush. 
On the one hand, says the Rav, Hashem himself sanctified Shabbos to have him rest on the seventh day. For this reason, Kiddush on Friday initiates with the verses of Vayichulu, which affirm that Hashem rested on the seventh day, and concludes with Mekandesh HaShabbos, that God himself sanctified Shabbos through having rested on that day. In contrast, while God himself vested holiness in Shabbos through having rested, it is the Jewish people who sanctify Yontif and the days of awe, because we establish every month through Kiddush HaChodesh. When we sanctify the new moon, we are the ones who establish the holidays. And that's why the Amid, the Shemona Esrei of Yontif, ends with Mekadesh Yisrael Vezmanim. God sanctified us, and we sanctify the calendar. There's an anomalous passage in the Yerushalmi and Pesachim. Most people know that. The difference between Shabbos, we say Mekadesh HaShabbos, because Shabbos is established, and it comes every week, like it or not, here it comes. Yontif, we set the calendar, and the calendar determines when the holidays fall. But there's an anomalous passage in the Yerushalmi and Pesachim, which says the concluding blessing on Shabbos should in fact be Mekadesh Yisrael the Yom HaShabbos. Just like Yontif. It should be Mekadesh Yisrael, God sanctified the Jewish people, and we sanctified the Shabbos. That's bizarre, because Shabbos doesn't rely on us sanctifying. Shabbos comes automatically at the end of each and every week. So that suggestion of the Yerushalmi, the Pesachim, seems to say the Jewish people play a role in sanctifying Shabbos. Consistent with the idea implied by the Yerushalmi, there's a Pesach here in Vayikra, in, uh, in Vayikra, which says the Jewish people sanctify both Shabbos and Yantif. It says... The appointed times which you shall set aside as convocations of holiness, Mikroi Kodesh So you see that Shabbos is called Mikroi Kodesh. The passage then goes on to discuss Yantif. So in the context of the Psukim, Shabbos like the Yantif is is described as being sanctified by people. So what's going on over here, wonders the Rav. Is Shabbos the same as Yantif? Is it different? Is it sanctified automatically? Or does it take our worth, our work? Says the Rav, there is a dual sanctification. Tzvei dinim. Hashem has to sanctify man and man sanctify Shabbos in partnership. For this reason, we invoke both creation and Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Shabbos was sanctified by Hashem at creation. At the same time, we sanctify Shabbos. After Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, it was sanctified by the Jewish people. And in light of the dual sanctification, we can understand the halacha. Says the Rav, we have an idea called Tosefa Shabbos. Shabbos starts when the sun goes down, when the stars come out. There's the Shabbos Hashem gives us. But we also have a mitzvah that we can add on or extend Shabbos. We should start Shabbos earlier or we can end Shabbos late. It's a mitzvah called Tosefes Shabbos. If there's no role for man in sanctifying the day, then we have no license, no ability to extend Shabbos. There is no Tosefes Shabbos. The whole institution, the whole mitzvah of Tosefes Shabbos implies that we have a role. And you can use that rationale to explain the insistence of the Shulchan Aruch that you can make Kiddush coming home from Shul on Friday night. According to the Shulchan Aruch, we don't delay. Why? Because there's a part of Shabbos that happens automatically, but there's a holiness and a sanctity of Shabbos that waits for us to give it to it. How? Well, we make Kiddush. Shulchan Aruch says, right when you get home, don't delay. If you know Ephraim Goldberg, you know this is one of my pet peeves. So if you invite us over on a Friday night, please, have this in mind. One of my pet peeves is coming home from shul. Go right to the dining room table. What are you sitting on the couch? What are you schmoozing and making small talk? What are you waiting for? Shalom Aleichem, Eishes Chayel, Kiddush. Wash, spend the whole night talking over the meal. One of my major pet peeves in life is that it takes way too long to start a meal. You have the whole night to talk. There's no timeline, deadline, finish it by chakras. So it's not only a Goldberg pet peeve, it's a halacha. Shulchan records this as a halacha. 
Where's the Shulchan Aruch? Orachayim, Simen Reish Ayin Aleph, Sif Aleph. Orachayim Reish Ayin Aleph, Aleph Shulchan Aruch says that when you come up from Shul, make Kiddush right away. Says the Rav, why are you doing that? Not just because you're going to annoy Goldberg. You're doing that because there's the part of Shabbos that happened automatically. When the sun went down, God embedded in the nature of the day that the holiness, the sanctity of Shabbos emerged naturally, automatically. But there's a sanctity and holiness of Shabbos that takes our work. We have to give it. We have to imbue it. And when we say Kiddush, we transform the day. There's the dual nature. That's what some say is also what's going on. Ilu Shabbosos. That if only we kept two Shabbases, Miyad Nigalan would be redeemed. It doesn't mean two successive Shabbases. Now we end the way we began, but now we will defend the song just one Shabbos and we all go free. If you keep one Shabbos, but you keep both parts of it, God's part of it and the part that we create. You have to safeguard and keep the part of Shabbos that God created, but we have to make Shabbos. Shabbos is not just do's and don'ts. Shabbos is not just passive. Shabbos is not just, oh yeah, I got to get through Shabbos. I can't wait to make Abdal and get on with my Motzei Shabbos. Lasos is a Shabbos. We have to see the Gishmak. Shabbos Nachamu. Shabbos offers the Nechama. Shabbos is Tachlos Maisabrishis. The reason we're working the whole week is to get to Shabbos. Shabbos is Mamash a Gaval to be with our family, to be with ourselves, to be disconnected from technology, from work, from bad news. Read, sleep, learn, enjoy, play games. Shabbos is gewaltig, geschmack, it's the best. But lasos, we have to come in with a story, with a Dvar Torah, with a provocative question. We have to shop and cook and make Shabbos. Literally, lasos, it's up to us. So there's the two components. There's the Shabbos that happens automatically. There's the Shabbos we make. Perhaps that's what it means. Shamush te Shabbosos is to keep not two Shabbases, to keep one Shabbos, but to keep the two parts of Shabbos. Then, miyad nigalim. Then, please God, we will be redeemed. We didn't get to it. Shema, the end of the parsha. So many beautiful insights. But here's the good news. Sitter Snippets is back. And we are currently up to the part of davening, which is Shema. So last night, tonight again, we'll have more interpretations. So if you want to join Sitter Snippets, snippets, you can listen on Podcast Player, you can listen on RabbiFromGoldberg.org, you can listen on Torah, and uh, you can get a Sitter Snippet in your WhatsApp every day. Six-minute Sitter Snippet insights. We're up to Shema. So this week, you double dip. This week, you get both the Sitter Snippet and... You get a Parsha insight since Shema is in our Parsha. Again, if, thank you to the Katzes. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode, you don't even have to call or email anyone. Just go online, brsonline.org slash donate, brsonline.org slash donate. Click sponsor a class and you can take care of it all right there. Have a fantastic day. Join us tomorrow morning. 8.15 for 10 minutes of meaning, 8.45 living with Amuna. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.